Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Eric Mathy. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Simon. Hello, Eric. Simon, Andrew, back again. <laughs> back again. Round two uh, with Eric. Um, yes. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> exactly. And, and we've, we've not done this before. Um, and the reason was, is anybody that's listened to the last show would realise that you know, we do have a bit of a format and we never got past the first part of the format, which is the, uh, the, just the, the, the catch-up chat between the three of us. And even to the point where Eric wasn't even formally introduced to the podcast, that's just how awry last week, or the two weeks ago, where, when, when we did the, uh, the recording went. So we're going to do I mean, I don't even know who that guy is, this Eric guy. Who, who is that guy? It sounds very similar to you. And um, and what we're, what we're going to do is um, we're going to do that part two now. And also later in the show, we're going to do those emails that we've been promising for weeks and weeks mm-hmm. uh, to do because Eric knows so many things and he's just going to give us brilliant answers to all the emails. Oh, <laughs> So, <laughs> yes. So um, I'll hand over to my friend in the fens, um, and you can introduce Eric. Well, thank you, Simon, and hello, Eric. Lovely to see you again. And I say see you because we're graced by um, being able to see your face, and listeners obviously can't. So that's nice. And uh, you're much better looking than either me or Simon. So we're very pleased to have you and to formally introduce you and welcome you to the Large Format Photography Podcast, Eric. Um, I feel I know a bit more about you now after last show's um, uh, ramble. But um, let's formally introduce you to the show and maybe you can just do that little bit where you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit how you got to... Um, the point where you took off down Route 66 with a large format camera. Right. Well, uh, I have to apologize. Hey, I'm Eric Mathy, by the way, and I'm already apologizing. I live right on the flight path of the Oakland Airport in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you may occasionally hear a rumble of uh, probably not a passenger jet, but probably FedEx uh, taking off directly over my house. So sorry in advance. Um, but again, my name's Eric Mathy, and uh, a long time ago in a land far, far away, uh, for whatever reason, I'm still not sure why, my mother pulled me aside in our house and randomly introduced me to photography by way of her Pentax K1000, that lovely all-manual brick of a camera that has uh, launched so many photographic careers uh, i was 17 i was a terrible drawer and it frustrated me but i uh, fell in love with the camera because it allowed me to actually capture what i saw because uh, i couldn't certainly couldn't draw it for the damn um and then i uh, followed that up and went to school for photojournalism at the rochester institute of technology uh, sort of gambled my way around a bit in and out of photography, uh, sadly did not pursue it as a career after a while because uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, that's a that's a tough road to hoe to actually earn a living being a photographer. Um, but through all that, fast forward to Route 66, I discovered cycling, long distance 
bicycling. I've ridden across the country. I've I've done a lot of really uh, poorly advised things on bicycles, and at some point in time, uh, rediscovered my love for photography and connected the two. You know, um, because you're just riding your bike to these really beautiful places and wishing that you could stop. And then I realized there's nothing keeping me from stopping, um, and there's nothing keeping me from carrying camera equipment. Uh, and so I did. Um, but with Route 66, which uh, Simon Andrew referenced here, uh, was weirdly enough four years ago. Four years ago this week, actually, I was on Route 66 and uh, I t- did it with a travel wide 4x5. So for those mm. of you out in, uh, yeah, there's that spark of the first sort of <laughs> kickstart mass produced weird carry around cone 4x5 camera. Um, that has uh, spawned so many uh, different versions. I think uh, there's a lot of them out there that use that design now. Um, But I wasn't really a a large format photographer before that. I was 35 millimeter. I might occasionally have dabbled in medium format, you know, the Texas Leica, the the Fuji 6.9, that sort of thing. Um, But I picked up the large format, the 4x5, because I had a cousin named Brian, Brian Brendamill. Uh, and he was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and the year prior to me riding Route 66, he passed away from it. And the thing with Brian that you have to know is he was very detail-oriented and very um, obsessive would be a good word. If, if, he, if something caught his curiosity, he would go all in, right? So four-wheel drive, like Jeeps, caused curiosity, and he built one for himself from scratch, right? Like literally, he would he would pursue something to the point where he could do it professionally. That's how deep his obsessions would go, and how deep his uh, attention to detail was. Which, as those of you who listened to the last podcast would know, uh, I have a fair bit of intellectual curiosity, but I have no attention for fine detail. So, I would go to Brian a lot with questions about things, um, and he was gracious enough. He was an older, a little bit older than me, to give me the time of day on on a lot of subjects. Um, and so it, it broke my heart when he passed away. It really did. And, uh, coming to grips with his passing was difficult. And the only way I could really figure to do it was to, to try to learn one last lesson from him, to try to channel him one last time through my photography and, uh, you know, shooting large format requires, at least at the surface level, a lot of that attention to detail, which doesn't come naturally to me, but came naturally to Brian. So I picked up a four by five for the first time and uh, went after it as an, as an homage to, to Brian to try to channel him one last time before I could really come to grips with his passing. Uh, and the entire trip was a cancer fundraiser in his memory. Did, did you cycle the whole route? Or? The whole thing. How far is that? 2,500-ish miles, oh. something like that. It did about a month. I averaged uh, 85 miles a day. Um, some days were longer. Some days were shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I gave myself, because you know I will stop and photograph everything. Um, so I gave myself a daily budget of film to shoot so that, A, I wouldn't run out of film because you can only carry so much. Mm-hmm. 
And B, so I wouldn't take like 16 hours, 20 hours to travel 85 miles because I'd be stopping constantly. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that the images really mattered and uh, that I just wasn't just like stopping at every thing that random thing that caught my eye, you know, like, because you can do that on Route 66. It's it's so full of everything uh, that's America that it's really hard not to stop at everything. So I think I think I gave myself a daily film budget of six sheets of film a day. So how, oh. how do you make that decision? Um, there's so many things to take. So how, how do you decide what to do and what not to do? Uh, that's a really For me, a lot of it's kind of instinctive. You know, if, if it's something that just catches my eye and it just makes me stop and gape, like, what is that obviously you have to stop for that like no matter what um or if if i ride by something and i'm in a hurry but it haunts me and i'm just like you shouldn't you should have stopped you should have stopped you still turn around you're not going to see anything like that again you should you should you should turn around and then i'll be like fine okay fine so here we go you need to bleep me again i'll turn around and, and ride that back up and you know shoot it you know case in point uh, perfect case in point. Uh, in Arizona, I was so Route 66 is sort of gently uphill for a long time, and then there's a certain tipping point where you start to go downhill. And I'd finally reached that stage. I was burnt out fighting the western winds. It was just it's it's not always an easy route. And I was finally going downhill to the woods in Arizona. It was beautiful. I was just like literally just like singing like yeah, you know, just like so stoked and. Um, I stopped to take a photograph of this beautiful field, total photographer's vision. I'm just like, got the image is the only thing I see. This woman stops behind me in an SUV local and she says, is that, is that smoke? Is that fire? And I pull myself up out of the camera. And I look to where she's pointing. It's literally 15 degrees to the right. Like it's not like, like really far away. It's literally just like turn your head 45 degrees and there's smoke. Right. And I was all, yeah. And we looked at each other, and she's like, huh. And she keeps going, and she drives towards the smoke, back, back down Route 6, down towards it. And I was like, shit, you know, I've been going downhill. I should go back. And I'm like, no, it's pretty far away. Who knows? I've got miles to make. I got to go. Pack the camera up, roll downhill, go downhill, you know, like a mile or two, take this right-hand turn, and stop and look back, and the smoke has, has spread a lot. Like it's spreading and I can see a, a helicopter hovering around it. And what was struck me uh, immediately was that where the helicopter was, the smoke was like as the helicopter went, it seems that, that either the helicopter was starting the fires or the helicopter was tracking the fire as it went. And I was just like, I have miles. I got to go. Like, it's always a balance of making your miles and making the photographs on these trips. Um, and I was just thought to myself, dude, you went to school for photojournalism. This is literally the reason you got into photography. How dare you consider not turning back? Mostly because I didn't want to ride back uphill, if I'm to be honest. You know, and uh, it's like, worst comes to worst, you're riding downhill to escape the fire. So you're good. So I turned back around, started climbing back up the hill, 
saw a Forest Service uh, fire truck, a uh, pickup truck, and just stopped to ask him. And he, and, and he was so calm. Uh, so I knew it wasn't an emergency or it was an emergency and he was really calm. And it turned out it was um, what they call, they don't call them controlled burns because as he put it, you can't really always guarantee that they'll stay under control. It was a prescribed burn. They were doing underbrush burn and um, they were coming down Route 66, sparking fires. And I said, well, do you mind if I go back up and photograph it? And he's like, yeah, sure. Just do what they tell you to. And when they come out, you need to come with them because they are starting a fire and the smoke is thick. And I said, great. Uh, and I'll send you one of my favorite photos from that trip. So I've got a four by five travel wide shooting x-ray film at 50 ASA, uh, which translates to one one hundredth of a second at F11 sunny F16 rules. Right. Um, inside the smoke, there's not sunny F16 anymore. You're shooting two, three stops below that easily at the edge of the fire. And the deeper into the fire you get, the less, fi- the less light you have. And so I'm desperately trying to like essentially shoot photojournalism style with a travel wide and x-ray film hand holding it some of the shots I, I took were with a tripod others i'm just hand holding because like these guys are and i'm zone focusing doing the best i can um i shot like four four of four of my budget days of film or close to a week of budget days of film in like two hours hanging out with uh, a national forest fire crew watching them do working with them do a control burn they actually had to come and dig me out because there's a shot where these god rays are coming through the smoke in this tree that they just lit in fire and i just kept waiting you know how the light comes through and you're waiting for the perfect like 45 degree god ray and i'm like the longer i wait the less chance is going to be there but i gotta try to get it and i got it and i'm like there might be another one and finally like a full-on fire truck comes rolling back up and because they were keeping an eye out for me and they're like that guy hasn't come back out yet and he comes back up it's like you need to go. And I was like, yeah, I was just thinking that. He's like, we'll drive behind you because the locals are still driving down Route 66 and there's 10 feet visibility. They're not going to see you. So we'll come out behind you so nobody runs you over from behind. I was like, thank you very much. He's like, yeah, no problem. You got to go. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll go. Um, but that's a perfect example of like the initial uh, instinct was I have miles to make. I don't want to ride back uphill. I'm tired. I'm like two thirds of the way through this and I'm shelled, you know, but then second, like turning around and taking a good look at it going, this will never happen again in your lifetime. So I can, under- back there. I can understand why, why you did that. But to, to go back to what Simon said, you know, I mean, I've done not on a bicycle, but about a hundred miles of route 66 on that famous touristy bit between Williams and Seligman. Is it? I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I was stopping the car and doubling back on myself and getting out. And Julie says, "You can't photograph that. It'll be someone with a shotgun come after you." I said, "No, no, it'll be fine." She said, "Well, I'm staying in the car." <laughs> and, and of course, a lot of these things that look like really old, rundown things, and they are, but they've been turned into like little touristy things as well. Yeah, but there's just stuff everywhere to photograph. And yeah, I mean, did you not do any? Say well, on did you not do any planning to say well actually because you can go on Google routes, can't you, and maps and look at the terrain and say well actually, or just say you know the six right. the six coolest places to go and shoot photographs. <laughs> yes, uh, well, and that's the thing. Like for for these trips, like Route sixty six um, was really the first super super long long distance self supported one that I'd done. 
with a, with a camera specifically to do photography. And the, the Butterfield trip was the second one. Um, there's a lot of really obsessive planning that has to go into them. But first and foremost, it, it revolves around food and shelter and water. Um, so if, if you want to do 2,500 miles of riding in 30 days, you break it down 85 miles a day, and then starting in Chicago, what's 85 miles out from Chicago? Is there roughly within a five-mile radius of that 85 miles someplace to sleep that's safe, someplace to get supplies that's safe, and someplace to get clean water that's safe, right? And if there's not, where prior to that is the best place to get the food and the water so that I have enough food and water to sleep overnight, have dinner, have breakfast, and move on and resupply fairly soon after the next day? Um, because safety and, and health, strangely enough, come first, um, at least when you're planning it in the actual execution, obviously that can go by the wayside, see forest fire. Um, but then from there, uh, once you have that mapped out, you can turn around and say, okay, on day one, I'm going from Chicago to here. What's interesting between those spaces? And, um, put those, you know, I use a GPS map, you know, put those on the map. Boop, boop, boop. And be like, that's interesting. Um, and also with Route 66, the actual route was created by a nonprofit called the Adventure Cycling Association. And they exist to create bicycling routes for people to travel on through the United States. And many of them are historic. So they literally just released the Route 66 maps. They'll research them for years in advance. Um, and these maps are wonderfully detailed. They include like the food, the hotels, the camping spots, and also tourist attractions and things of, of note. Uh, so for that route, I had a huge leg up in that the Adventure Cycling Association had done most of it for me. Mm. Um, the thing about that, though, that I didn't realize until years later, when I was actually experiencing the Butterfield trip two years ago, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is... You know, everybody thinks of Route 66, like you do and like I did, as this like Americana, this tourism thing, where the, the road itself was the destination. But in reality, before it was that, Route 66 was the road that everybody who fled the Dust Bowl, that devastation, to California, that's what they took. Um, it was a road that poor farmers from Oklahoma and Kansas and other places took with their beat up vehicles and all the possessions they could pack in, um, to go become migrant laborers in California. Um, it's the road that led to the grapes of wrath and the unionization of farm workers. I had no idea until I was in the labor camp that became, that was the basis for the grapes of wrath by John Steinbeck. And, I was looking through the historic stuff there and I made that, they, they, they all came down route 66, you know, and I missed it. I really kicked myself because there's so much more to route 66 than, you know, the VW buggies, mm. you know, planted upside down and all yep. the, the, the muffler man and all that, that tourist stuff, which is really cool. Um, but there's other things that are there. Uh, and in typical American fashion, we sort of, gloss them over for the the marketing tourism crap because we don't like to remember uh some of the things in our history that aren't that wonderful um route 66 also covers the end of the trail of tears 
for Native Americans um, in Oklahoma. So it's what, what's the Trail of Tears? Sorry, it's just oh, okay. So the Trail of Tears uh, is an event. It's a general sort of name for the forced relocation of the original Native American tribes from the East Coast, from uh, Mississippi and New York and others, by the U.S. government to what was known then as the Indian Territory, what is now known as Oklahoma. So they were forced out, like the, the Southern plantation owners wanted the developed land that the Native Americans had, the Choctaw, for example, uh, had most of Mississippi and had, they were an, ag- an agricultural society. Um, and the plantation and slave owners wanted the already developed land. So Andrew Jackson kicked them the hell out. Hmm. And so that forced relocation where anywhere from 25 to 50% or more of the tribal members who went along it died, became known as the Trail of Tears. So, that, so I'm, I'm going to be leaping now into your um, uh, later journey because it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's very relevant. Um, right. Having seen, having had the privilege of watching the whole hour of your, uh, or the, the Adobe-produced movie Ride Slow Take Photos, there was a section in there towards the second half where um, you go, you, you've had a number of appointments that have either bailed on you or they've forgotten you or you didn't get the text or some other nonsense. Right. And right. you turn up at this place, which was a wall art gallery. And uh, and these days gallery, I think it's called now, or it used to be called Indian yeah. Alley. Just t- tell the listeners about that because th- there was, uh, I've written a few notes down and taking away their identity was something, you know, by resettlement. And it just, when you were talking about resettlement, you talked to that guy, Jacques Fragua, I think his name yeah. was. Yeah, you know, Jacques Fragua. T- tell, listener, tell listeners a, a little bit about that, would you, Eric? Because I thought that yeah. was uh, one of the high spots of the, of, the, um, of, of, the, of the movie and maybe on your journey as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to touch a bit on, you know, to, to touch backwards a little bit on how these trips come together, um, you know, uh, after the Route 66 trip happened, and those photos were mostly scenic and you know the tourist stuff. Uh, I really wanted to to get back to taking photographs that meant something, yeah. you know, that weren't just scenic pictures. And and we'll talk about this, I'm sure. There's nothing wrong with pretty scenic photos, but it's not why I got into photography at all. Um, I got into photography to try to make the world a better place. And so I think most photojournalists get into photojournalism. It's like they want to do something real. Um, so with the Butterfield trip and the height, which really I started planning right, right when Trump was doing his, his child separation policy at the border and just some really intense, inhumane stuff, it struck me that there's a lot of lessons that America has should have learned that we just don't seem to learn and we keep redoing over and over again. Um, like imprisoning Japanese Americans during World War II for no other reason than the fact that the color of their skin. Um, that was it. That was the only reason. Uh, and obviously our, you know, hundreds of years of policy towards Native Americans. Um, but what people don't realize in Los Angeles and California, it wasn't actually the, the British colonists who did any of that, like all the tribes in California 
most of them don't have recognition from the U.S. federal government because they weren't displaced by us. They were displaced by the Spanish, right? Los Angeles was founded by the Spaniards through Mexico. And there's five families who founded Los Angeles that came up from Mexico, half Spanish, half Mexican. Um, and there's actually a whole genealogical society who trace themselves back to those founding five families. So uh, that fascinated me, right? And so I wanted to talk to somebody who descended from one of those original families to see what their perspective on that was. And then also a member of one of the local tribes, the Tonga or some other who were there, right? And how they see each other and themselves and their place in American society now. Like I wanted to get those two sides of the conversation. Um, so in downtown Los Angeles is where the memorial to those five families stands. And that's where the interview with uh, the woman who descended from the, one of the Spanish families was going to meet me. Uh, she herself is a, is a historian and with for one of the little local cities. And then a local uh, woman who's got her doctorate in women's studies, who's an artist and, and activist, was going to meet me in Indian Alley, which is the place you're referring to. And sadly, within 24 hours of me getting there, they both pulled out. They both couldn't make it. So uh, I went to Indian Alley, which is it's still referred to as Indian Alley. Indian Alley in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, was essentially where all the the Native Americans would go who were homeless to sleep. And they would, they would go to Los Angeles and other developed cities because the Bureau of Land Management, the federal agency who oversees the reservations, uh, were essentially trying to get rid of the res. They've been trying to get rid of the reservations for forever. Um, so they would promise jobs, right, in these industrialized cities, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, etc. And tribal members would go because there aren't a lot of jobs on most of the reservations uh, only to find that there were no jobs. It was, it was a lie. right? There was nothing there. It was just a ruse to get people off the reservation so that they could eventually just shut the reservations down and absorb the members of the tribes into society and just strip them of their identity as a people so we just wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. Uh, but obviously, there are no jobs, and uh, race plays a large factor into getting jobs. So many of them became homeless. Uh, they turned to alcohol. They turned to drugs. They fell into Skid Row, which is that section of downtown Los Angeles at the time. And there was one clinic, one clinic that had beds and treatment programs that treated only tribal members. And it's in the building where these days gallery now is. So if they couldn't get into that treatment clinic, they would sleep in the alleyway behind it for safety. Uh, so essentially, if you weren't a member, a tribal member, you weren't getting into that alleyway. Wasn't going to happen. Um, but that didn't mean that there wasn't a lot of violence and drug use and other things down there amongst themselves. Uh, so it was the polite term for it was Indian Alley. It was also known as Blood Alley because the amount of blood that was spilled there. Um, and uh, eventually Skid Row moved to a different section of Los Angeles and the clinic and the nonprofit went somewhere else. Um, and Steven, the gallery owner, moved down to Los Angeles from San Francisco, opened a gallery and uh, learned about the history of the place and decided that he wanted to do something about it. So he essentially recast it as an open air art gallery for native artists only for murals and paintings and whatnot. And uh, Jake, who I interviewed, happened to be in town, and he and Shepard 
fairly the of obey giant fame uh co-painted the first piece there um and i was just really lucky that uh steven didn't think i was completely full of crap when i told him the project i was doing and jake just happened to be in town doing a private commission um and was kind enough to come down and talk to me it was an amazing interview he's an incredible artist he's he's a very very active uh as an activist um as not only for on travel issues but also for greenpeace he's a greenpeace uh activist he does rope climbing and other things um he's a remarkable individual and uh i was very very fortunate to have gotten an interview with him yeah well it was it was certainly one of the highlights of uh, well it appeared to be one of the highlights of the trip and it certainly comes across strongly in the movie, but I'm, I'm conscious that I sort of jumped in there and you've mentioned <laughs> Butterfield uh, Trail w- right. w- once or twice. And so that was the a mail route, wasn't it, over, over land? Correct. And you decided for some reason to cycle 1,250-mile, 1,250-mile segment of it mm-hmm. from San Francisco to Tucson in 20 days. Right. So whatever possessed you. <laughs> it goes back to that I have a lot of really not very bright ideas. Um, but, you know, Route 66 it fascinated me because after I'd done it, because it really drives home how much, at least in America, where we have all this space, how much America has really grown up around these big thoroughfares, these big routes, you know, that people have traveled. Um, and how those routes, when they move, can change things. Like, you know, these little towns the cities I grew up around route 66 died because the interstates went in half a mile, you know, a quarter of a kilometer. Yeah. The I 40 mostly, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so when those went up, these towns literally died thriving communities that go away because of a motel eight and a subway and a gas station. Uh, and that's both really sad and also really fascinating. So I thought, well, what's older than route 66, you know, how about a mail route or a wagon route? Let's go back to the Wild West. Um, the Pony Express is the famous one. It only existed for a year and a half, but it's much more rugged. And I, I didn't really have the confidence as a cyclist to, to do some of the sections of the Pony Express. It goes through like five, 600 miles of high desert with no resources. Like it's, it's dangerous. Um, but the Pony Express was made as the express workaround for the Butterfield Overland Mail Route which was a wagon route that went from St. Louis to San Francisco by way of South through Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and over. Um, and so since it terminated in San Francisco, I thought, well, I can just roll right out of my garage, hop right on it and follow it and, uh, sort of see what's happened between then and now. Um, and it also just happened to coincide again with a lot of political issues around the current presidency that deal with immigration and history and things that we just don't seem to learn. Um, and California, you know, in particular, like we're California, Arizona, like we're a, we're a, a hotbed for immigration because of our borders with Mexico. Um, and also in general immigration, you know, the Chinese immigrants came here to San Francisco and got, you know, put into a camp uh, on what is now Angel Island and held there because of intensely racist policies. Uh, when World War II came around, the Japanese-American po- uh, population here in San Francisco and Los Angeles were just picked up and shoved into concentration camps 
you can call them relocation camps. The reality was they're concentration camps. Um, so this region has a tremendous history with these issues. It just seemed like something that we should be talking about. So I decided to see if I could talk to people about it. And I really wanted to talk to people in person because social media has been so divisive. That was the other thing. You know, we're just yelling at each other all the time on our keyboards on Facebook and not actually talking to each other and having a real conversation. Uh, so I also wanted to know if, if that was still possible. Like, could I meet strangers who didn't agree with me and have a civil conversation about something? I, I wanted to know. So you you had this trip in mind you know partly fired off by route 66 and you know old historic route overlaid with a sort of photojournalistic drive to mm -hmm. talk to people because this route go dips into the mexico dips into mexico a little bit doesn't it and you're very close to the border yeah but you didn't want to do it with an iphone you <laughs> you and i've seen i've seen you i've seen your bicycle and man that looks heavy <laughs> had what what gear did you take and surely you must have taken some really high-end lenses with you because why wouldn't you <laughs> ladies and gentlemen this is known as a leading question um, <laughs> uh well gear wise yeah it was heavy uh gear wise so when i started looking at these these historic routes I went off the deep end and thought it'd be really neat to, to photograph a wagon route or, you know, a mail route with something that's period correct. Um, I started looking at brass lenses, you know, 1800s brass lenses, which you can, you can find a lot of nowadays. We talked about that at the last podcast. Um, but then, you know, where I live is, is expensive. Uh, and we got hit with a rent increase and I, I just didn't have any money to buy anything. I had maybe a $20, $30 a month photographic budget, which barely kept me with the ability to buy x-ray film and develop it. So I thought, well, these lenses are really simple. Let's try to build one. Uh, and I purchased a couple of, of optical elements, acromats, um, and in trying to figure out how to put them into a barrel or finding like a lens barrel that would fit them perfectly, which is a giant pain in the butt. Uh, I just for fun rolled one of them into a dollar bill and made a barrel out of a dollar bill and, and cut a lens board out of cardboard and slapped it onto the front of my good old intrepid four by five. Um, and it made an image. So I was like, well, that's cool. Let's just shoot some paper, some, some photo paper, negatives and you know cheap and see what i can get with it and they they came out pretty interesting S which led one thing led to another still being poor i did the math better on my second lens and made a better lens and um put it onto a, a speed graphic with you know the with the shutter in the back because the lenses i was making don't have an integrated shutter so i needed a camera with a shutter um and, uh, you know, they really started coming out well. I mean, well would be an understatement. I, I just fell in love with, you know, it goes back to something for the folks we talked about the last podcast, you know, like when you, when you make an image and it hits, right, and you look at it and you have you as the photographer, as the artist, as the photojournalist, it, it, it hits you and you're like, this is a shot. Like, this feels good. This maybe didn't get what I was expecting to get but it got something that's special. And 
I want to keep making images like this. That's where the what what people now call the dollar bill lenses that I, that I started making. That's where those images really started to go for me. Um, it, it, you know, after you've been gone a long time and you come home, and it feels good to be home. That's what it felt like. It just felt like I'd found home, uh, and I've stuck with it. So, um, long story short, I took a speed graphic, a three and a quarter by four and a quarter speed graphic, not the four by five, uh, but three and a quarter by four and a quarter speed graphic with the integrated rear shutter and a single lens made out of two Acromats and four one dollar bills. Just explain to me, Simon will know this. What is an Acromat? An Acromat is a lens element that's made up of two pieces of glass, a crown and a flint um, that are either cemented or air-spaced. And uh, they are essentially, in a nutshell, the most optically correct single glass element you can get. Like the creation uh, or discovery or creation of the Acromat is what spurred almost all of the modern corrected lenses. Like the, if you look at the Petzval, the first Petzval, right, is a pair of Acromats. Um, the first globe lens, like a lot of the, the classic brass lenses from the mid to late 1800s were essentially uh, a pair of Acromats or a single Acromat with another lens in the back, but they all have at least but, one Acromat. But the crown and the flint made differently in the production or are they just different shapes they're different shapes and they're typically made to fit together perfectly because the one corrects the other right yeah so they're designed to to in so the front is typically the crown unless i'm mistaken i could be wrong they might be flipped anyways the, the front one matches perfectly to the other one and they're made to correct each other and there's an air so having seen these things there's an airspace in between where you're putting a piece of cardboard with an aperture cut out no no. <laughs> this is where visual aids are useful. Um, some of them, most of them that are in lenses aren't airspace. Most of them are cemented together into one single sort of right. unit. Yeah. And then my lenses, that particular lens was a pair of those cemented acromats. Yes. Separated by um, usually five to 10 millimeters. Yep. And that's where I would put the aperture. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, uh, almost, but quite, quite. Well, I, knew, really, that I, would... I, knew, I knew what I meant. <laughs> yeah. two, two, yes. of those, two of those of cemented together elements with an airspace in between them. Yes, there we go. Between the two acromats. Yes, perfect. That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> now you've completely thrown me now. So, but they weren't. Were, were they just wrapped in dollar bills, or did you have some yeah. other reinforcing in there as well? Um, the only thing I did is. Uh, and I still do is I use adhesive backed lightproof foam, you know, okay. the kind you use to, to re light seal the back of a 35 millimeter camera. Yeah. Um, I use two pieces of that on either side of the acromat to essentially create something to hold the lenses in place. So they don't move around because dollar bills, uh, they're essentially a fiber, right? Um, they're essentially a cloth for all intents and purposes. Um, but they're slick. Like they're not going to hold a lens in place. So you need something to actually keep them in place. So, um, yeah, essentially four lengths of adhesive backlight proof foam to keep the lenses solid, unmoving. Um, and then I would cut a slit in the dollar bill on the top in the barrel between them to drop the, the apertures into like a water gate, which is a classic design, 
um, that you typically see in uh, pets lenses use a watergate aperture design it's like a drop-in so the calculation of that will be something to do with focal length isn't it and yep. when you wanted to do calculate your exposure so that's yeah well not the exposure but the focal length itself there's a a very simple is i'm a terrible at math by the way um, but there's a very simple formula to figure out the when you combine two lenses like two two lens elements like that um there's a very simple formula to calculate their effective focal length right and then their back focal length which is how far the how much space you need from the very back of the rearmost piece of glass to the film plane to focus at infinity um, modern lenses will have anywhere from 8 to 24 or 30 lens elements inside them. And all that math in there is how you can get a 300 millimeter lens that only needs, you know, 40 millimeters between the back of the lens and your film plane. Mm-hmm. That's well beyond me. <laughs> That's That's a Jason Lane conversation. That is exactly. And they have just, yeah. So how, how, how did you get to the point where you actually were able to work out what shaped elements you wanted to buy to make a lens and then subsequently re- refine your, your technique uh, to, to make slightly more complicated lens? How, how did you go about doing that? Uh, well, there was, uh, there's, it's not very active at this point, but I, I was fortunate enough to find one guy who runs a Flickr group for, for DIY handmade lenses. And that's where I found that math um, and some examples of stuff that, that he had built. Um, so that was, that was my start. Right. And pretty much I just worked at it. You know, there's a, a there's a little, little shop, uh, mail order shop. Uh, I believe it's in Pennsylvania. I could be wrong called the surplus shed. This guy named Fred runs it and he has a wonderful online catalog of, of surplus optical glass of all shapes and sizes um, with the ability to search through his catalog by like focal length and diameter and element type, and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's a godsend if you're going to build your own lenses. Um, so I just started ordering, just playing around, like doing the math and be like, okay, if I combine this and this, what does that work out to? Oh, cool. Um, without really having any idea originally of things like how big of a piece of film would this cover? I mean, I, I lose track of the number of, of little lenses I built that don't cover four by five or, you know, that just vignette like crazy or barely cover three and a quarter by four and a quarter, but you can't move no lens movements at all, you know? Um, is all this or, or elements that like a uh, math might make a really nice lens, but when you put them together, they're just a mess. Like there's nothing good. There's no clear image. There's just, it's just a disaster. Um, it's just experimentation, constant experimentation and just playing. And the nice thing about it is it's cheap. You know, these, these little optical elements, you know, are anywhere from $4 and 50 cents to $15 each. You know, if you want to get really spendy on the really, really nice pieces of glass, they're like maybe fifteen bucks each through Fred. But most of the ones, like the the ones I used for the Butterfield trip, were I think maybe seven dollars each. Okay, so so let me just pull you up on something here. So this yeah. this the lens which your whole project hangs on, right? Because mm-hmm. they produce some really interesting images. You know, you in fact I don't think you need camera movements because 
these lenses have their own built-in sweet spots. And you just you just compose. So, so you got all the way to a ferry, I think, yeah. and you went to take a photograph of something, and you'd yeah. left your lens at home. Not at home. No, 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 no. I left it behind after the first uh, the first portrait. So the first day, for recap for the listeners in the audience, all all like five of you maybe, um, <laughs> is I I left, you know, my house, and rode my bike to 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 uh, to Oakland, um, Jack London Square, where my first interview, my first photograph, my first portrait is a gentleman named Daryl Barnes. Uh, who's African-American photographer, grew up in and out of homelessness uh, in Maryland outside of D.C., self-taught himself photography with disposable cameras as a kid, um, and has a, a project he works on on and off called We Are All Relevant or War, where he interviews people in homeless camps to actually like, figure out who they are and tell their story and take a really nice portrait, uh, because he grew up in this, right? Um, he's a really great guy. So he didn't, we were scheduled for me to come and interview him and take his portrait. And he's like, man, I can't, I can't stay. Uh, you know, he was, you know, like a lot of people in the Bay area, he was freelancing, like driving Lyft and Uber. He's like, I've got a pickup. I've got a, you know, I've got an Uber pickup in like 15 minutes. You have like 15 minutes to photograph me. All right. And I've got a, a film crew behind me, like all over me. I've never actually worked with a film crew like all over me. So I'm nervous, I'm out of my game. You know, I set it up, ad lib it, get the shot. He rolls off to, to do his Uber pickup. And I'm like, you know, and it was also way earlier than, than he and I had scheduled. So I had a, an extra time to kill. Um, packed my stuff up, went to the ferry, which is right there, because I was taking the ferry to San Francisco to my second interview to continue the trip. Uh, pull my gear out to take a photograph of the famous uh, um, cargo trip cargo cranes down there in, in oakland and i can't find the little case that i brought along to put the lenses in to keep the lenses and keep them safe i'm like i must have put it someplace wrong you know i'm off my game you know I'm, i must have just put it someplace wrong now i tore my kid apart couldn't find it and i'm just like cursing a blue streak um just crushed scream back over to where I'd photographed Daryl and it's nowhere to be found. There's, there's a lot of homeless camps down in Jacqueline. And so somebody ground scored it, you know, got four battered, cut up weird bucks. Hopefully they got themselves some food and some coffee, something. Um, but yeah, no, I lost it. I left it behind because I was just, you know, rattled. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I picked up the phone and I, I called my fiance praying that she hadn't gone back to bed, you know, which a sane person would have done. And, and luckily she hadn't. And I was like, I need, I knew exactly where another lens was. It was what I would call a B lens. It wasn't the one I'd practiced with. It wasn't a sharp. It wasn't a favored lens. I hadn't really used it that much, but it was okay. Right. But I knew where it was. Um, and I knew it was the right focal length. So I was like, I need you to get this spare lens. This is exactly where it is. I need you to get me um, this black paper that I use to, to make the apertures. Right. I need you to get me a sheet of that. This is exactly where it is. Um, I need scissors. I need these things and I need them to come down to the Jack London ferry, like right 
now because the ferry is coming in like 45 minutes and I have an interview in an hour and a half. Uh, and God bless her. She fought traffic. She got the stuff. She fought traffic. She got there. And I was literally riding the ferry. Um, the one thing we didn't have was a ruler. So I had no way to measure my apertures. Um, I just guessed at the aperture size, just, you know, guessed it. Um, and uh, on the ferry, on my way to my second interview with with Katie Nand, who's an immigration attorney specializing in uh, representing children in immigration court, cutting apertures and praying they were right and hoping that I would get a photograph. And I shot the entire trip with that lens that was uh, almost an entirely unknown quantity because I just had barely shot with it because I, I didn't really like that lens. So there's so much hanging on that because you, you mentioned this film crew. Yeah. So how, how did that come about? You know, <laughs> Adobe, you know, they make software. I didn't know they made films. Yeah, right. Um, well, technically they don't actually. Uh, not like this. I was riding my bike uh, back from, from Looking Glass Photo. I'd just been at Looking Glass to develop film. Um, and I had my kit with me because... Pretty much the, the, the rule when you're prepping for these trips is practice, 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 right? Um, ride with the gear, photograph with the gear, work it out so that when you're out there, there's no guessing. Like it's just, you have to get a photograph, you get the photograph. The only thing you have to worry about is getting the photograph. You don't worry about the mechanics. You don't worry about where your shit is. You just, sorry, more bleeps. You just know where it is. It's, it's habit. Um, so I was riding up a steep hill in the Berkeley Hills because also I needed fitness um, and traffic forced me to ride alongside another gentleman. Um, and we started a conversation. He was curious about the gear I was carrying and we chatted and he was like, Oh yeah, I just did a documentary on this famous, you know, large format photographer in New York uh, name, honestly, excuse me right now, but I looked him up. He's like famous shoot rock covers, all this sort of stuff. He's like, well, what's the project you're working on? And I told him about, the Butterfield trip and the journalism aspect and the handmade lenses. And he's like, Oh, that's really interesting. If you're into it, like he literally said that if you're into it, I'd like to shoot a doc on that. <laughs> oh, that's my name's Dan Cowles. I'm the executive producer for Adobe create. Oh. And I was like, uh, uh, internally, uh, I was like just trying not to like literally fall off the bicycle and get run over by traffic, uh, and externally and and externally I was just trying to be cool, you know like oh, wow yeah that would that would be that would be really cool that'd be great, um, but I also thought you know like Adobe Create that's if you don't know what they are Adobe Create is is uh, Adobe's digital magazine. Um, slash creative arm where they highlight artists, photographers, filmmakers, people who use Adobe products, or maybe even don't use Adobe products who are doing interesting things. Uh, typically as a rule, they do pieces on really famous people, you know, folks who like shoot covers for time or are world renowned or, you know, are legit. I am not legit. Um, like I've never had a gallery show in my entire life. I've never had a magazine cover. Like my stuff's not published. Like, you know, so I decided I would give him a graceful out. And when we got to the top of the hill, I would show him the work I just published. I, I just, sorry, I just uh, developed and he could 
probably beg out and say, oh, when are you going? October, we're really busy. Pleasure to meet you. Let me know how it goes. Like, just let him back out and uh, not commit to this folly that he just committed to. But I showed him the work and, and he said, man, this is great. Modern photography is so formulaic and clean and boring. Like, and your work is definitely not formulaic and it's definitely not clean. It's great. I really want to do it now. And you could have like pushed me over with a feather. <laughs> and I gave him months to back out, but he, we kept going on bike rides uh, before work and whatnot and chatting. And he inevitably would bring the project up again. And uh, like a month before I left or a month and a half before I left, something like that, he said, hey, we need to have a phone call. I just signed a contract with the production crew. I have budget for 10 days. Let's figure out what the best days are. And I was just like, oh, sh oh, I really actually have to do this now. And the images actually have to be good. <laughs> so it's always a good idea not to leave your lens at home then. Or <laughs> right. Or, be, or behind to get, you know, ground scored by, by uh, uh, somebody, you know, who needed to buy a cup of coffee in their mm. defense, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. On camera, by the way. On camera. Um, originally I was like, no, just don't, don't, do not film me right now. I am losing. And then once I calmed down as Heather was on her way with the replacement lens, like my brain kicked back over to the journalism side of me that said, I am denying these folks the opportunity to tell a story. And that's not cool. Right. Like it's, it's not cool for me to say this might cast me in a bad light. Don't do it. Because if I'm shooting somebody, I don't want them to do that to me. Why would I do that to somebody else? Like that's a completely hypocritical of me. So I said, okay, let's do it. Let's let's talk about the lost lens. I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So that's that's how that made it in. So they weren't they they weren't with you day in day out because it was twenty days. So did they right. just join up with you here and there at predetermined points? Yeah, um, yeah, they they. They were with me a couple days before, you know, like building the lens and the and packing the bike and that sort of stuff. And then they were with me. The crew itself, the full crew, was with me 10 days out of the 20. Uh, but Dan had a low time at work and he could work remote. So he actually floated around and popped in sometimes a day before the rest of the crew popped in um, or would stay like a day after they left um, to shoot extra footage. You know, like the interview with uh, Lucinda, you know, host in Phoenix, that was just Dan. Uh, he came in early and the rest of the crew came in that afternoon, that evening. Um, the first day the and the second day at the campground, like in the evening, in the morning, that was just Dan. The rest of the crew peeled off at like 9 p.m. that night. And I was riding till midnight the first day. First day was rough. Um, so all told, I'd say there's probably 14 days. I mean, there's sort of half days when Dan was around, but like 14 days out of the 20 when total, I think. And you had quite a few bags and panniers and goodness knows what hanging off your bike. Um, mostly camera gear, or did you have, have did you take spare underwear with you? <laughs> ah, underwear is overrated. Um, mostly, I'd say weight wise, three quarters of everything was camera gear. Mm -hmm. um, my my camping setup is pretty light. You know, the tent weighs maybe two pounds. Um, it's an ultralight tent, you know, the, the sleeping equipment told, I mean, I think all told my entire camping kit 
without food and water is less than 15 pounds. Um, I've been doing this a long time now, so I've got a, a very compact setup for camping and that sort of stuff. Like if I didn't carry camera equipment, my load would be a quarter as much as it is without the camera equipment, especially the speed graphic. I mean, the speed graphic, and then I think I had 16 four by five film holders is a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. You, you were doing some of the, doing some of the changing. You stayed in one or two motels and you fortunate enough yeah. to find a darkish space and you used what looked like your bicycle light to change some, because you know, with your x-ray film, you can at least have a bit of light, can't you? Yeah, exactly. The key, the secret is um, to find hotels that have bathrooms that don't have an externally facing window. Um, or if it does, that it goes to an alleyway that doesn't have a light and has a bunch of spare towels. And then I would <laughs> jam up the windows and the doors and the cracks at like midnight or 3 a.m. Um, and then the camping headlamp I have has a red light and just sort of place that over in a corner um, underneath because it's not quite a safe light. Like we, we all know what a, a red safe light is. It's not close to being a red safe light. So put it off someplace distant under a corner, in a corner underneath like a, a handkerchief or a, a hand towel to dim it. Yeah. Um, and that way I could I can load and unload this kind of film, clean the film holders, etc., and still see what I'm doing. It's it's really it's luxurious, honestly. Like if if you shoot normal black and white film and you're used to fumbling around in the dark and swearing and film holders are dropping and you're not sure did I did I put that slide in the right way and did I did I clean this out and de-static it like did I just tear that film like all that sort of stuff, man, it goes away when you're loading an ortho when you're loading X-ray film or litho film underneath a red light. It's it's. It's kind of addictive, actually. It's so easy compared to just reading normal film. Really? <laughs> it's, it's awesome. So uh, out of all the interviews and the interesting people y- you met, I don't know if they were all on camera or you know, every interview you had was on camera. The, the, what, what was the message you were trying to um, get out there into the world from your photojournalistic point of view? Well, I really wanted, first and foremost... You know, I, I wanted to see, for, for my own sake, whether or not it was possible to still have like a civil adult interesting conversations with people on topics that are getting increasingly like politically and emotionally laden, that are yeah. getting increasingly because of social media a black and white issue. Hmm? Divisive, sorry. Yeah, yeah, divisive yeah. is a perfect mm-hmm. word. Because um, I think someone recently referred to an interview social media as a poison chalice. I think that's incredibly accurate. Um, it, it has incredible upsides. Like I would not have met you two gentlemen or any of the people, uh, at all without social media. But at the same time, when we look at, you know, what's happening in society, you know, England and America and other places, um, it's getting really bad. So, uh, for my own sake, I just wanted to see, like, the state of the world. Like, could this happen? Could I talk to people? And could we come away with a mutual understanding of some kind? Because it's, it's, I think it's important that we were able to do that. And uh, the second thing I wanted to do is, you know, find these stories about America 
both from a historical standpoint, you know, things like Native American relocation, Japanese American relocation, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, stories about Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Union and where he came from uh, to what's happening now. Like we don't, we don't, we don't backtrace very well. We don't seem to like really connect the dots historically to our past mistakes and those and those lessons. We just don't, you know, those camps that were that the U.S. government is throwing those kids into are just like, if not actually worse than the Japanese American relocation camps. Like the Japanese American relocation camps had kitchens, they had baseball fields, they 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 had stuff. I mean, they were terrible. Don't get me wrong, they were really terrible, but they're infinitely better than the cages with like space blankets that we're putting these kids into feeding them like frozen burritos, you know, that are barely warmed up, you know, ham sandwiches for seven days straight. Like it's like, are these children that are youngsters who are coming over the border without adults or with adults and they're being separated because the, the parents, the adults might be their grandparents or they might actually be their parents, but they don't have enough, you know, paperwork so that the, the border patrol can, can say, well, we don't believe that this is your child. We're going to separate you. And in some cases, like there's, there are, like, don't get me wrong, there are legitimate cases for that. There's a lot of child trafficking. There's a lot of sex trafficking on that border, like without a doubt. Um, but at the same time, it's also become a tool to inflict damage and to try to dissuade people from coming at all. Because even if they do have a legitimate reason to come, even if they are in fear of their life in their home country of um, sexual assault or gangs or a million different reasons, um, essentially this administration is trying to dissuade them from coming because you'll, well, you may lose your kid at home, but you'll for sure lose your kid if you come here, right? They're just trying to make it worse to come here than it is to stay where they are, Uh, which is just not... Yeah, a million, was, a million knots. I, right. I was reminded as I watched, um, particularly as you got close to the bit to the wall, because you know Trump, Trump came into power and said, "We're going to build a wall. We're going to build a wall." But actually, a lot of that is still is there, isn't it? And yeah, and they are extending it. So there's, uh, if you can get it in America, I don't know Sue Perkins, who's a sort of um, lady comedian in the UK. Uh, she did a two episode documentary on the on the BBC, I think it was. Okay, and she travelled along the border, and she, and a lot of what you were doing, she was doing as well with the BBC film crew, and she, and she made some heartbreaking interviews with families who are separated. You know, the father is on the Mexican side, and the wife and the kids are on the American side, right. and they go once a week to one place on the wall, where the only physical contact they can have is poke a finger through lattice work. You know. Yep. Yeah, and and she stood next to that wall. You know where you went? You you went up to this to the wall where it's got barbed razor wire on the top and big steel uprights, and the border patrol came and waved mm-hmm. to you. And, and she was there, and and she was pretty much in tears. You know, looking at this, and and they're extending it now. There's a bit of the as you go further east, uh, the the Rio Grande is the natural border yep. because it's mountainous, but. They're now starting to extend the wall along some of these natural areas of natural beauty as well. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, currently a, a huge uh, fight and movement um, in Arizona on the border that uh, in the in the documentary Paul Molina touches on. There's a there's a there's a tribe down there 
whose reservation is on both sides of the border. Mm. And, uh, you know, the indigenous community wants no part of this. There's, you know, they don't want a wall built across their, their reservation, literally separating families from families. They're, they're currently building that wall. And so there's daily protests down there to try to stop it. Um, let alone, you know, like the, the natural beauties and conservation areas and a million different things that they're coming across where the, the effect on, on the environment and on the, the wildlife, you know, migratory routes, just a, a million different poorly thought out things though. Actually, it's not even that they're thought out, but they just don't care. Right. Um, you know, the, the devastation is, is, is massive. Um, and it's just not really, I and mean, we're, we're veering a little bit away from large format photography into politics, but, but I think to a certain extent we can talk about this too. Uh, photography for me is always involves some level of, of politics. If you give a shit, um, if you want to do something besides take pretty pictures, you know, but, um, but yeah, there's just, there's no reason for it at all. You know, all the reasons cited are, are bollocks. I, you guys have the best terms, by the way. Bullocks. I mean, God, I could. I should just use. Can I just use that instead of dropping the f bomb or, or yeah, swearing? Sure. Do you, will you bleep me if I say bollocks? No, no, not so. Bullocks. All right, perfect. I'm gonna bullocks my way through the rest of this this, this did, podcast. The, the fact that you made that lens with a dollar bill did that take on any other kind of meaning on the journey as you spoke to people? You know, the fact that it was this U.S. currency and it was a fairly small value. I mean, in my in my head, I think, well, actually, some of these people probably earn that, you know, the, uh, migrant workers who are sort of illegal, you know, how much mm-hmm. have they paid? You know, are they living in poverty. Did, did that take on any other kind of meaning to you? Was it as the journey went on, the dollar it bill did, lens? For sure. It did before I even left because, you know, I did it out of desperations to, to keep taking photographs, you know, and I couldn't buy i couldn't get a brass lens i couldn't really shoot actively because i, I had no money you know it's, it's so expensive so making a, a lens out of dollar bills was definitely a combination you know of you know the, the, the two-finger salute to the system you know i'm gonna make i'm gonna keep making images anyways you know screw you i'm gonna keep making photographs um, to a bit of performance art, you know, where it's like, this is my statement. I'm, I'm going to, I can't afford photography, so I'm going to figure out a way to do it. It's cheaper for me to to make equipment out of dollar bills than it is for me to buy equipment. And I can spare four bucks for this. So let's spare four bucks for this and go make art. You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, on the route itself, not many, I mean, people definitely chuckled and like really enjoyed sort of like, that's your camera lens, you know? Um, and that part was really fun. Like the, the, the shared moments of doing, you, you're doing what with what? And, you know, looking through the back of the camera, I think, you know, taking a page out of, out of Wayne's book, you know, having your camera be something that isn't just an instrument, you know, where you put somebody in front of it like a spotlight and say, hold still, pap, here's, here's the shot, but making it something where it's a, a common point of interaction, you know, where they can look at it and interact with it. You know, I, most of the portraits I took on that trip and have taken since then, I'll go stand where I'll get the shot in focus. I'll place it, place them. And then I'll 
go over, stand next to them and put my feet right where their feet are, set them to one side and then tell them to go look at it so they can see what does the shot look like. And if I'm taller than them, I'll sort of squinch down to about their height and look ridiculous. Uh, but just so they can visualize what is happening and also see what that weird lens does and and get that visceral experience of, of what the camera really does and be able to touch it and see it. And since it's an old camera, smell it, <laughs> you know, that smell of leather and wood. Um, and it, it gave a good... Um, commonality of experience that invested the subject with the photograph. Because I think at some point you say, you know, you, you wanted to overcome that, um, not fear, I don't think was the word you used, but, you know, you, you weren't perhaps at your most comfortable photographing oh, yeah. people or photographing strangers. And many, many listeners to this podcast and others will, will know that feeling. Um, yeah. So I, I thought it was really, really good the way you um, you got them involved in the way you said you know to uh, got them engaged in the making that must have put them at their ease as well and yeah. got them more engaged in the whole process yeah a lot more and, and it's just fun you know like what's the fun in in interviewing someone and getting you know or or taking their portrait and not actually like involving them mm. you know not actually getting them emotionally involved with what you're doing you know it's there's, there's no fun for me in just slapping someone up in front of the thing and say, okay, to the right, to the right. Okay, head up, head up a little bit. Look at me, look at me. Like, you know, it's just, uh, I don't get the best photographs that way. And granted, again, I'm, I'm not the best portrait photographer on the planet. Um, I, I still rate myself as only a marginal portrait photographer, even after all of that. Um, but for me, at least, I, I managed to get more of a natural connection and more of a natural reaction, having had them behind the camera to sort of see what the camera does um, and to be able to have that ability to banter with them. Like I told the corniest stroke to listen to, to get that gut laugh. She's so kind to laugh at my terrible jokes. Um, but it turned out to be, you know. You mean you I weren't flirting with her? Not at all. I, <laughs> I cracked some stupid ass joke. No, if I was flaring up, she'd be like, oh, God, white guy. Um, Just, uh, sorry, we, we, we perhaps were talking about that before we started recording. So who, which was the um, lady that you were referring to? Uh, so Lucinda Hinojos is a mural artist and activist in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, and she's the portrait of her in front of this really beautiful mural um, that she painted for the Dreamers. The Dreamers is a, a Dreamer Act is a law that was passed in the United States that allows a path to citizenship for kids who are brought here, you know, as children by their parents and their parents were illegal. Right. But the kids were raised here. And so the dreamers Act gives them an actual viable legal path to citizenship in a country. It's the only country they've known United States. Right. And it's become a focal point for a lot of the arguments around immigration in America. That backstory said, um, Lucinda painted, at that point in time, the only mural she'd ever painted in Phoenix was a dedication to the Dreamers. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful piece. Uh, and that's why I interviewed her about her art and her activism and um, the current immigration policies of the day. Uh, but the portrait was, uh, you know, I took a serious portrait. I typically will take like, a, okay, look at the camera, take the shot. Um, and then I'll flip the film over and banter some while I'm doing it. And once the film, the second side of film is in and the dark slide is pulled and the camera's cocked um 
without warning them, typically, I will often try to do some piece of levity or crack some joke or something stupid just to get a small smile, like some natural smile. Some Because people, I don't know about your experiences, but when you tell people to pose, they pose very artificially. <laughs> no. Um, my buddy Vince used to run a wet plate photography uh, studio in San Francisco. And he told me his experiences shooting wet plate photography is you know, the smile people smile that post smile it's not natural for you to hold that smile like that like when you do it like it hurts your cheeks it sucks like, like the human face is not meant to hold that rictus like grin at all the best smiles are the natural ones that are just they're fleeting they're like that you can't tell people to do it they'll never be able to do it so when you're shooting wet plate photography like he did he would just have people relax and look at the camera and beat themselves because that's what you can do and that's why most wet plate portraits are very serious because that's a natural expression for people to hold. You can't hold a smile for three seconds and not look like a psychopath. You know, like, sorry, but you really can't. Um, and so I just try to pop a quick joke or some bit of levity to get a smile like the Border Patrol, uh, the Portrait of Three Border Patrol guys, where the one officer is looking at the other and they're cracking up at a joke. Like that was, I cracked that's a great, some joke. That's a great portrait, I have to right. say. Yeah. You know, and the, the portrait before that is they're looking at me all bad boys, you know, and it's also a good portrait, but it's a completely different, different thing. Um, and the bad boys portrait wasn't my experience with them. No, you know, my experience with them was three really nice guys who, you know, on the record were doing their job and sort of like unofficial off the record weren't always hundred percent comfortable with what was going on, but it was their job. Cause were they, were they Mexican? Cause there was two I, of them, two of them were, two of them were. Did they of, make, I didn't quite, there must've been more that was spoken about that was, than was recorded. Cause Oh, yeah. So when they got the one of them said when they when we got the job they were saying oh you're going to be arresting us all now or something like that yeah. and they said this is my family you know so yeah, it's, exactly it can't be the easiest job in the world for these guys no not at all um, and you know there were there were subtle things that that they might say or body language because at that point in time Trump had deployed the National Guard to the border in Texas in a bit of buffoonery. Um, and the National Guard couldn't actually do anything. Like the National Guard went down there and pretty much picked up, pretty much picked up like border border patrol horse shit, literally, because they have horse units down there and like cooked food and and did stuff. But they weren't actually the border. The National Guard isn't actually allowed to do law enforcement. Right. So it was just show. Um, and I mentioned that, like, so what do you guys think about the National Guard down there? And like, oh yeah, they've been deployed, but they were rolling their eyes, just like how you know this is. You know, just like telling me how dumb it was without telling me how dumb it was. Um, You know, so and they they really tried to concentrate on the aspects of their job. I think that made them feel okay. You know, the the parts about interacting with local youth to try to keep them because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of gangs and there's a lot of drugs and there's a lot of sex trafficking. There is a lot of really terrible crap at the border. I mean no no joke there's a lot of really terrible stuff and they would much rather talk about that legitimate law enforcement that they do um than the immigration enforcement that they don't really have much of a choice but to do um at least with the rank and file border patrol officers you know sort of the elite tac units that they're sending all over the place now to like portland and that sort of stuff those guys are a bit more hardcore and i think they're more um, politically motivated, indoctrinated. Um, 
I think at this point in time with this particular administration, they sort of have to be. Um, but my experience with the with the daily rank and file board patrol officers uh, was much different. Hmm. Well, it was a great part of the interview. But before we move on to different, maybe other part of the show, maybe we can yeah. do some emails. I, I can't really leave this bit of interview and talk about the the guy you ended up with right at the end. Wayne. Um, my mind was blown when, when you knocked on his door and then I wanted to see more of his cameras. I wanted to learn more about what he did and why he did it. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Wayne. Wayne Martin Belger. And I'm probably, sorry, Wayne, I'm probably maybe mispronouncing your last name. Um, Wayne is a man. He's actually never taken a photography class in his life. He is a trained machinist. Yeah. Um, by way of background, punk rocker, you know, man about town kind of guy, uh, who was in Los Angeles at some point in his life, much earlier, earlier in his life. And, um, had someone ask him to build a pinhole camera or a fake camera. I can't remember. I think it was for a show or for something, for some reason, you know, Hollywood. And he built it because again, he's a machinist and he thought that was pretty cool. And so, uh, being of an artistic bent, he went ahead and, and he built one of his own, but far more artistically. And then he was like, well, what's this pinhole camera thing? And he started figuring it out and making images. Um, like one of the cameras from that particular era of his life, uh, you know, this is back in the 90s, HIV, AIDS, huge issue, uh, especially in California, right? Um, he made... Uh, I can't remember the name of the camera, but essentially, I mean, I'll quick find it. Um, he, he did a project where, um, let me quick find it for you. So I'm not um, misquoting anything. Um, there it is. A project called Untouchable, right? Because there's a lot of stigma around HIV and AIDS and like blood and sweat and that sort of thing. And so he made uh, the HIV blood camera project. He made a, a incredible, almost biomechanical pinhole camera out of machined aluminum and like tubing and glass. Um, everything's out of aircraft grade molunum. And so what he did is then he took um, some HIV positive blood from a friend of his and put it through cylinders and tubes, including a plate that's in front of the lens. So every portrait that's shot through that camera is shot through a thin layer of HIV positive blood. And he took portraits of people who are HIV positive through that camera. And that's the project. Um, and it's the camera itself is a stunning work of art, of mechanical art, functional mechanical art. Um, and the images, uh, because he used a uh, color paper um, and are incredible. And that, that became his thing. Um, so I, I, I became aware of Wayne mostly through the, you know, the, the DARPA pipeline coverage. Um, and he was shooting a project called us and them. And he also went to the, the Isle of Lesbos in, in Greece, right. Where all the Syrian refugees were coming across. Yeah. Um, and he custom built this beautiful us and them camera. And his, the whole point of that project was 
was trying to get a conversation going about this artificial definition of us versus them. Like, who is us and who is them? You know, and how those definitions are always driven by a government who wants to cast the other person as being bad or an adversary or terrible. Specifically, at that point in time, around like Syrian refugees and then refugees at the American border, right? There's this like, they're coming to take our jobs and, you know, deal drugs and be horrible and spread crime and rape your wife and you know, like all these, all this complete bollocks. bollocks. <laughs> oh, so much bollocks. Like bollocks up to your chin. Sorry. Um, and he wanted to take portraits of, of the them who are coming to those countries, the Syrian refugees and whatnot, and, and humanize them and get their stories. And so uh, this camera was just ridiculous. Like it, it had the contents from a Vietnam War veterans kill box. Do you know what that is? A kill box? I dread to ask. It is some units in the U.S. military during Vietnam had to prove that they'd made a kill. So they were required to take an ear, oh. a tooth, piece of hair. Yeah, I thought you might say it. something like this. Yep, and to prove that that they made a kill. Mm. So this gentleman, um, the father of a friend of his, had a, gave Wayne uh, the contents of his. He gave him his kill box, and um, and told Wayne like a week later. He's like, "Thank you so much for taking that. I haven't gotten a single night's sleep since Vietnam." And since I gave you that box, I've been able to sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And so the entire SM camera is just built around that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's really intense. And the topic is really intense, but but Wayne is really intense. Um, while also being a, a remarkable, thoughtful, wide open human being. Uh, who cares deeply about his subjects. Uh, and one of the things he told me uh, that I don't think made the, the the tape, right, the reel, was we were talking about photographers and news and that sort of thing. Um, and he said that one of the refugees from Syria told him that he never, ever talked to people with guns or cameras because guns and cameras in his experience, did the same thing. They took away and they never gave back. Because you know, a lot of a lot of uh, modern media now, like they'll they'll drop a photographer into into the island of Lesbos. They'll get they'll spend three hours, four hours, six hours taking photos, and then they'll go away, and they'll never come back, and they'll have helped no one. Right, yeah. um, and that's you know, it's it's. That's for me. That's the antithesis of of what photography should be doing. Like, it, you shouldn't. If you're going to go photograph something like this, do it right. Give a shit. You know, I, I had a professor prepare for rant here. I'm sorry. Um, a professor in college, Gunther Cartwright, who's a friend and a mentor and father figure and a lion of a man. He was legendary of just brutal cutting to the point uh feedback of work and um can you still hear me yep okay cool um my screen just blacked out i was like no so gunther like the first day of class with gunther he literally said if any of you ever bring me a photograph 
of someone who's homeless without knowing their name and their story, how they got there, I'm flunking you. Mm. Not for that assignment, but for the entire class. This is not what photojournalism does. This is not what photography does. It does not take advantage of people. That's not what you're here for. If you do it, you're out. No second chances, no nothing. You know, and as like a, you know, a 19, 20 year old kid that I just transferred there, uh, who really was wanting to get into photojournalism because I wanted to do something good. Um, but never really thought of that, right? Like, and had literally the week before taken a photograph of a homeless person sleeping in a, in a bus stop in Toronto on our way to, to Rochester, New York. You know, it was just like, it was punch, man. It was just upside my head with two by four. And uh, I've never, I've never photographed um, someone who's homeless since, not in that manner. You know, it's, it's just not what photography's for. It isn't. You know, it's, it, if you're going to give a shit, give a shit and do it right. And there's, there's nothing wrong with taking a pretty photo. There's nothing wrong with taking that 30-second shot of the waterfall or whatever else. It's, that's all good. Like, we all do it. I do it. What have you. And, and if that's what you aspire to with your photography, God bless. It's not what I aspire to with my photography. I'll take well, those photos, but it's just not. It's just not. No, well, it comes across very strongly in the, certainly in the last two uh, podcasts we've done with you, and then with uh, with, with the Adobe project. Um, is is that going to be made available for people? Because it's hard to view. You can see a bit of a trailer. You can go and Google it and find this little teaser, and then you go and right. look for it and think, "Well, I can't watch it." <laughs> well, it just made uh, a the world premiere, world premiere, with the San Francisco Independent Independent Documentary Film Fest uh, last month. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Adobe isn't averse. Like they're actually open to distributing it, but ironically, Adobe's never made a feature film. This was supposed to be like a five-minute, maybe ten-minute artist feature. Like it was never intended to be a full-length documentary. But as they cut it and edit and cut it and edit and cut it and edit, they got to the sixty-five-minute mark, and they're like, "We can't cut anymore. I, we guess we've got a full-length feature." We've never made a full-length feature. What do we do with this thing? <laughs> like, you know, Adobe's a giant, you know, they're a software company, but they're also actually a giant media company. Um, but they've never made a film before. So um, Dan is the is the director of the film um, and the you know, executive producer at Adobe Create. He, he handles all their, most of their film stuff. You know, as he can, he's trying to explore how to distribute it and his bosses are fine with it being distributed. But, you know, he's... He has a day job that isn't actually feature films. So <laughs> if anybody out there has any ideas on how to get a 65-minute, I think quite nice um, documentary film distributed, you know, let me know. Happy to listen. I have no idea. You know, <laughs> I'm all ears. I was going to say, oh. it's, uh, it's, it might be worth, uh, worth catching up with Shane and... Uh, the two people that um, did his documentary. Um, yeah. So um, I, I dare say they, they know a thing or two about that. Yeah, they absolutely. Do. That was superb, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, Shane's, Shane is a, he's quite a dude. Um, I haven't actually talked to him in person yet. Um, I've had a few exchanges with him here and there, but he's, 
He's a pretty intense cat. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think um, it's, we should um, do what we said um, at, the, at the top of the show. It's, it's quite interesting, actually, though, how, I mean, we've, we've done, like, the second part of the planned podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the t- the two shows have been completely different. <laughs> What's the third one going to be like? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. Well, you know, there's there's a few people have said they want to get drunk with me and do a podcast with you guys. So I guess we could. <laughs> Well, do something interesting i'm not sure but yeah well the, I, I well and uh you're referring there to uh, jason lane um, who's, indeed who's, who's been on this podcast and has been on a couple of uh, episodes of the classic lenses podcast and we we will uh, get jason and eric together on the classic lenses podcast at a, at a future date and it's i think we'll probably just let the two of them talk to each other and listen um, because it's <laughs> going to be fun um but before we do that let's yep. do our emails. We have three whole emails that we've been yeah. promising to do. In fact, well, two of which we've been promising to do for a long time. And Eric quite clearly knows knows a lot of stuff about things. <laughs> so uh, Eric's going to help us um, with answering these emails. So, uh, but uh, Andrew, have you got them teed up and ready to go? Yeah, which one do you want to go first? I've got three that you've sent me. Question about getting into large format. Yeah. Yeah, one. Which, 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 do that one? Which, whichever you feel like. So we're going to do all three anyway, so. Okay. I'm easy. So, whew, would you like me to read it? Should I read it? I can it? read it. You can, can read, read it if you want. Oh, excellent. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go I'll on then. I'll take the load off. Knock yourself um, out. So I'll go with uh, Mike Kukavika. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said that. Kukavika? Yeah. Kukavika. Kukavika? I mean, you can say it like Kukavika. I mean, this is a, Mike, if you're listening, you've got a killer last name. I'm sorry I slaughtered it, but I tried to slaughter it well. All right. Hello, gents. I've discovered your podcast and really enjoy it, even though the largest negative I can produce is a 6x9. I love the size of that negative and have thought of going larger. During your conversation with Ben Horn, you'd recommended an Intrepid camera as an inexpensive way of breaking into large format. However, my enlarger is a Bessler 23C and can only handle up to 6x9 negatives. For quite a while, I've been thinking about pinhole and direct positive paper or contact printing negatives as an even more simple way, quote, in, end quote. A direct positive print would be a really unique object, and it's pretty cool, if backwards. There are lots of options, from Ilford Walker 4x5 camera to any 8x10 options. Oops, that is 5x4 or 10x8. I forget who I'm talking to. The thing is, being limited to 4x5 as the maximum print size is pretty limiting. I consider it 8x10. However, the cost of anything associated is a lot higher let alone developing that large, as my darkroom is temporary and hardly light period enough for film. I think he meant light proof enough for film, although it's fine for paper. With that said, do you have any thoughts of getting into larger format without being able to enlarge anything above a six by nine? P.S. I agree with everything you said about speed and people crazily pushing film. I think (laughs) if they ever tried to print those negatives, their minds would change in a hurry. However, if someone would will only ever scan their negatives, well, they're giving up a large part of the image-making process, printing. If the print is the natural ending process, yet is avoided, I guess it only gives you exposure and development to truly influence the result. Although camera scanning can go a very long way towards allowing interpretation of the negative. Personally, since I started printing, 
My goal is to end up with an image that is well exposed and a little flatter than more contrast. In my experience, it's easier to add contrast than deal with high contrast negatives, thus avoiding a solid workflow and eliminating variables. Take care and stay safe and healthy. Sincerely, Mike Kuk... I'm going to kill it again. Mike Kukavika. Mike, my friend, you've written a novel, and it's kind of awesome. You're, you're my kind of nerd. Um, <laughs> and I say that with nothing but affection, although I am one of those people who crazily pushes film and does other really ill-advised things. So you and I should talk, Mike. It'll be, it actually be a pretty good time. But to your point, to your question of how perhaps you get into large format while only having an enlarger that goes up to six by nine, that is a rough, a rough road to hoe. Um, especially if you want to do any sort of like traditional and process printing. I think what I would do if I were you is, um, I don't think you have much of a choice, my friend, but to either just do contact printing, you know, essentially take your four by five negative, get a four by five, right? Get an intrepid, um, go eight by 10, eight by 10 pinholes a really fun way to go. Actually. Um, if you're technical, I built, for example, a really, really fun four inch by 10 inch panoramic pinhole camera. I have a round hat box. It was super fun. Um, and it takes really neat negatives, um, which just, scream for contact printing but essentially without getting a different and larger i think your only choice is to just blast a, a you know a rectangle of light down and do a contact print um of either your original negative four by five or whatnot or doing what is sort of the standard process for a lot of people these days which is sorry scanning it and then printing it out onto a transparency and doing what people call a digital negative and then contact printing that. Um, but if you really want to stay true, we want to stay true to it, get that Intrepid. I have one. They're lovely. They're a really affordable way to get into 4x5. Um, shoot whatever negative is your preference. It could be your paper negatives. I've shot a lot of paper negatives. They're super, super fun. Ilford RC Papers, a great way to cheaply do paper negatives. Um, and then you can... Uh, I don't want to wrap too much on you. We have we have two more emails to do. And then contact print that um, would be a really fun way to get a very pure experience like you're looking for without uh, dealing with a scanner and without going through the expense of replacing your, your wonderful Bessler 23C. Can I just say, uh, what friend of the show, Wayne Setzer, um, is selling lots of equipment, cameras and darkroom gear, in order to buy um, an RH Design stop clock timer. <laughs> anyway, I noticed on the th on the Facebook thread, and it's mm -hmm. it, it must have gone by now. Someone surely must have taken him up. He was letting go of a large format enlarger, and I'm sure it goes up to five by seven. And he was yeah. just letting it go for 150 quid or 150 dollars or something. There's somebody somebody must have done that. So so Mike Mike just. Go onto the Facebook group and look yeah. up Wayne, but it's probably gone. Yeah, or depending on where you are, man, there's there's darkroom equipment going for literally free. Come still, pick it up. Still on even Craigslist now. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Is it? Yeah. They're all over the place. And okay. and, and Andrew, I I I'm beginning to think that yeah. we should um Whenever we get emails, uh, we should just send them get, over to Eric, yeah, he, and uh, get him to record, right, reading them out and answering them, and then we'll just stick him at the end of the show. He's, he's doing a far better job than me or you would ever do. Uh, you can do. I'll do an Ask Eric portion of the show. Ask Eric, yeah, love it. 
right. I've written that down. Ask Eric. Uh, I mean, the answers might all, might not always make sense, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try okay. to at least make them entertaining. Oh, that, I mean, that that was a quality answer. Um, it was. It was. Uh, and certainly better than anything I could say come out with. There's no two ways about it. So, uh, And it wasn't just the way it was. It wasn't just the content of the answer. It was it was it was almost like a performance. I found <laughs> excellent stuff. I oh, know. I think we're onto something with Ask Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to oblige, gentlemen. Happy to oblige. OK, then, Eric. So uh, what's 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 the next question? <laughs> Uh, I might as well just do them in reverse order of, of how you sent them to me, I guess. Um, we have Andreas. Andreas from Dutch Autumn equals a lot of rainy days. I believe this. Hi, all. Hi, Andreas. Love the show. Actually, I should say it the way he, he all caps love, by the way. I don't know if I'm giving it enough gravitas. Hi, all. Love the show. There we go. Recently, I got my hands on a full Cambo SC monorail set from an old photographer. It includes four lenses, three Simar S and a Super Anglon 90. Are Simar S's lenses any good? I have got a 100, 180, 240, all 5.6, and nine sheet holders, plus a 6x9 roll film back. All of that for free. Wow. Wow. But now the question. Since the rainy autumn weather has arrived in the Netherlands, and I really want to go out and try to shoot some land seascapes, how or is it possible to shoot in the rain of wet weather with such camera? And with the Classic Lens podcast, was there a lot of fun to pronounce my name? So therefore, I will use my second name for no. Cheers, Andreas Wietse. Wietse, W-I-E-T-S-E. W's usually Wietse, Wien. Amersfoort, the Netherlands, with the net, with with the flag. Even, dude, that's a great set to get for free. Good, great, googly moogly, man. That is a score. Um, wow. All right. I want to hang out in your circles where this stuff sort of drops. Actually, actually, have you two found? Before I answer Andreas's question, I'll get there, Andreas. Have you two found the longer you stay in, like? analog photography as the kids call it nowadays the more weird free stuff just lands in your lap yeah, some not not much not as much as i like not like a full <laughs> kit like that okay so simon goes out onto these weird auctions and ends up with a lot of stuff that he doesn't pay an awful lot for and then he yeah. he's supposed to sell it because that's what his business is apparently yeah. Uh, but he doesn't sell it; he holds on to it. Yeah. Well, there, there, there was there, there was a, a notice a notable uh, and quite early early days in this podcast um, uh, free thing that happened, and that was uh, I was appealing um, for the first few episodes, uh, saying that we've we've I'm starting well, started a dark room, but uh, trying to get a dark room club um, reinvigorated, hmm. yeah. and uh, and we didn't have a large format enlarger. And um, and a a previous guest, Stephen Sagersby, um, donated a a, a Devere seven oh five, so uh, five by seven and larger. Five oh seven. Um, nice. Five oh seven is it? Oh, yeah. So um, so yeah, that 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 was pretty damn stunning actually. So um, so yeah, things do 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 happen that way, but not very often. Certainly not as uh, incredibly as as uh, as that and larger coming yeah. to us. No, that yeah. was a real. That was very nice of Steve to support your six towns darkroom by donating that. Yeah, I say I. I actually like Andreas. I've gotten not one but two monorail four by fives handed to me. Um, one like a seventies era, and one like a fifties era, made by the same company that made the Speed Graphics. 
um, it's a beautiful piece of equipment with like the red bellows. It's it's it screams speed graphic, but as a monorail four by five, it's a really cool piece of kit. Um, so I was just curious if anybody else had had stuff to land in their lap. We're just like what? Um, but Andreas, your question. Back to your question. Shooting wet weather with a big old Cambo SC monorail. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, again, this falls into your uh, ill-advised answers from Eric. I do a lot of ill-advised things. But I also shoot in bad weather a lot on these trips. Um, if you have the wherewithal and the space to do so, umbrellas are very, very handy. If it's not too windy, you'll probably lose the umbrella and the tripod you're attached to. But there's actually a, um, there's little uh, accessories you can buy for tripods that are literally made to hold an umbrella or um, like a light umbrella or a normal umbrella. So hunt around for those. And more than likely, you can literally just get uh, an accessory for your tripod or get a little auxiliary tripod that you can attach an umbrella to that will keep most of the rain off of your camera. Um, as a rule, the cameras themselves are, you know, unless it's like a pouring, you know, rain, in which case you should probably not be not anyways. But if it's just like a little bit of mist, or whatever, most of the cameras can deal with a bit of that as long as you dry them out when you get home. Um, bring along several lens cloths so that you can wipe your lens clean, put on a UV filter over that lens. Uh, some of the large formats, because of the size of the front lens element, it can be a little expensive to get those filters, but they're worth their weight in whatever you want it to be worth to protect the front element of your large format lens. Um, and also because you can just quick wipe off the, the water from the rain or whatever right before you take your shot and then you take your shot um, and then put the lens cover back on. So yeah, man, it's absolutely possible as long as it's not too windy because those monorail cameras essentially turn into a giant sail if it's too windy. Don't ask me how I know. Um, and not too rainy, you should be perfectly fine. Just make sure when you get home, take the camera out, stretch the bellows out and put it someplace that's a little warm so the bellows can dry out and make sure you don't get any uh, moisture inside the lenses or inside the shutter. Because if you do, you're going to need to also lightly disassemble those to make sure that that air like dissipates out and you don't get um, anything growing, any fungus among us inside the lens that you don't want to have be there. Right. Can you dry those things out with, um, you know, like silica gel pouches or yep. people put them in packs of rice, don't they? And then stick yeah. them in the airing cupboard and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. We just end up keeping, you can do rice, but rice sometimes like is dusty, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't always recommend rice at all. Yeah. But like every time you buy electronics or shoes or whatever, they come with those little silica packs. Mm. So just hoard those, take them, put them in a glass jar and seal it. Because if you leave them out, the silica packs absorb moisture from the air and become useless after a time. So take them, put them into a jar, seal the jar, scoop top jar, and put them in there in mass and just pull them out when you need to dry out equipment. And then I've put actually been onto eBay and bought some, for not very much money, you can get some, forget those little tiny ones, but you can get decent-sized ones, you know. Yep. But, uh, yeah. I don't know how much um, desiccant they have in them, but substantially more than what you get in your shoes. So... They're yeah. quite useful things to keep. I throw them in camera bags, and then periodically, I put them on, put them in the oven in the and dry them out in ah, the, for an hour right. or so on a low heat. It's yeah. not ideal, but uh, uh, it does work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's a good tip. Um, yeah, I take them on on my trips a lot because even if it's not raining, you know, inside of a sealed bag in the heat, you can yeah. still get condensation and moisture. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, 
So I hope that helps, Andreas. Well, what about the first part of the question you sort of glossed over? Are they any uh, good, these lenses? Oh, yeah, yeah. Super Angular 90s, the CMRSs? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the thing about that I find about large format lenses. Um, even They're the ones... Good. Yeah, like the ones that are quote-unquote cheap. Yeah. You know, the, the little Kodak Ektars and the stuff that came off the press cameras, um, like the speed graphics and whatnot, that people don't rate very highly, the super compact ones. Um, you know, I took one of those on Route 66, on, and they're brilliant lenses. You know, if, if they give you a little flavor around the edges, whether they're wide open at F8 or F68 or F47, that's, that's great. Like a little bit of flavor is awesome. And if you want edge-to-edge sharpness, everything is great over F11, really. I mean, you know, so the, for the most part, unless you're being really exacting, um, the vast majority of large format lenses are going to be brilliant for you. Uh, you can get incredible results off of lenses that you get off of eBay for sixty bucks. Simon, what's um, what's the lens on that baby speed graphic you're trying to sell me? Which is exactly the, is that the same camera that Eric took on his uh, close Butterfield? Uh, yeah, so it's a well, it's a, it's a two two by three, and mm-hmm. but the actual lens that's on that camera is it's come off a Bellows camera, uh, so it's come off a six by nine Bellows camera, and it's a it's a Snyder. Um, and it's a it's a triplet design. I can't quite remember what the name of it is now, but it's a tri- it's a triplet, um, which can be interesting. Um, I'm yeah. Gonna say. yeah. But it doesn't yeah, belong, it doesn't belong on it though. As such, but it'll, it will cover it'll cover the frame, no problem at all. Is it a uh, is it the same focal length as the stock lens, so that the rangefinder still works? Uh, I doubt that very much. I mean, the other thing is, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that just swapping a a focal length of one lens and uh, the same focal length but a different design will actually match the rangefinder precisely anyway not precisely it'll get you in spitting distance and it shouldn't diverge so much there should still be in, in my experience and this is where someone's going to write in and be like what do you what kind of crack are you smoking um but there should be a certain range of focus where they don't diverge very much at all and it should still be accurate and that might be like six feet to 20 feet right um but the way to test it is is really straightforward as long as that little baby has uh, a ground glass on the back mm-hmm. you know you, you put that lens on and then you just focus at infinity with the rangefinder, and then check the back to see if it's focused then you just step through the range and see you know at which points it the rangefinder and the lens start to match up assuming they're both yeah. for the same focal length, right? Yeah. Um, and then you sort of mentally mark that, okay, that's 30 feet, making these numbers up. And then just keep stepping it back until it falls out of focus. And then you'd be like, okay, well, this this lens matches this rangefinder from 6 feet to 20 feet. And if you only shoot 6 to 20 feet, brilliant. Who cares? So, Eric, I've got this. Uh, Simon doesn't know this other email that's come in. It says, um, hi, Simon and Andrew. Love the show. So the friend of mine is trying to sell me this baby speed graphic camera. And um, and I've got this. Uh, I've got an RB67, and apparently I can use the backs straight onto this baby speed graphic. But I've got yeah. so many cameras, you know, and I've got I shoot large format pinhole, got a Texas Leica, Rolleiflex. So tell me, ask Eric, because I know Eric's going to be reading these emails. Why um, <laughs> why should I why should I buy this uh, baby speed graphic? What would it what would it bring to my photographic life? 
All the best, Andrew. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, wow. All right. The uh, the form factor of the Baby Speed graphics, I have one of those too, um, is really nice. First they're off. cute, aren't they? They are cute. They're, they're cute and, and they handle really well. Yeah. They're really, it's a really fun visual experience to shoot a Baby Speed graphic. Um, and honestly, if you, the Baby Speed graphics with a film holder in them, like, you know, with a medium format back, you might as well, honestly, for me, that's no different than shooting your. Your Texas Leica, or, yep, or any other sort of or my field. RB, but it's just your RB or well, the RB is heavier. Yeah, say a field capable camera. The RB is is a tank to bring out somewhere and shoot, but um, but the experience of shooting sheet film that small, you know, and this like, especially as long as the, as the rangefinder is synced up, so you can just like pick it up and focus and shoot right, and not use a tripod. Um, it's really fun. Like there's something really fun. I mean, you, you both shoot four by five in large format, mm-hmm. right? There's something really fun about taking the film holder out, slapping it in, taking the dark slide out, shooting, reversing the dark slide, putting it back in, flipping it over. You're shooting that second shot, scrambling for the other one. Um, that's uh, for me anyways, it's a, it's a really interesting combination of say street photography with a 35 millimeter or maybe like your Texas Leica, you know, and shooting a large format with the film holder. Like it's a, it's, it's fun to get the experience of both in a package. That's actually, you know, a, a baby graphic is really tiny. Like form factor. It's not appreciably. It's actually smaller when it's folded up than your, than your Fuji 690. Are film holders easy to come by Simon or Eric for those? Yeah. The, the two threes, they're, they're not as, for, in my experience, anyways, they're obviously not as common as four by fives, mm-hmm. but there's there's a fair number of them out there. They can be had. They can be had affordably. They're a little niche. Most people take those cameras and swap them over to a back, like you have. Yeah. You know, like a usually it's a speed graphic, um, a Graflex back, right? Um, that'll swap in there. They convert it over to a Graflex universal back, and just put a a six nine or a six six or mm-hmm. you know six seven on there. Um, and they get rid of all their film holders. And is yours still is yours still usable, Simon? As a with sheet film, or is it just? Yeah, been, yeah. I've, I've got two two boxed unused film holders for it as well. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then for film, you either just you either just load up paper, or um, cut my, my X ray film down. Cut your X ray film down. Um, get lithographic film. I think Arista's lithographic. They might make that a two by three. Or a fun option, I haven't shot any yet, but there is a company in China that makes black and white film in all the sizes. Um, God, what is that stuff? Lucky? Just, is it Lucky? I don't know. No, lucky. it's not Lucky. Um, God, what is that stuff? It's on the top of my head. It's not the, not the Cat Labs one, is it? No, no, it's not uh, Cat Labs. Although the Cat Labs may be... Um, let me find out. China? Shanghai? Yes, something like that. Mm. Large format um, camera film. We're certainly going through all the options. It's one of those, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I've been. Yeah, Shanghai. I believe it is Shanghai f- film. I'll look it up. But GP three, Shanghai GP three. I'm mm. pretty pretty darn sure they make it down to the two by three size really cheaply mm. and that that film is sort of catch as catch can my understanding is the quality is is up and down in it a little bit yeah. but whatever 
okay well thank you for that answer (laughs) yeah Yeah, correct answer (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do that tackle the last um yeah yeah. what Um, what probably is the most complicated one well actually it's less a question more just a statement Um, Um, uh, yeah yeah yeah. i need to read it yeah mark mark full hey mark how you doing hi guys i just listened to episode 34 and you are all way off on your discussion of diffraction (laughs) i don't understand all the math but it is very simple in practical terms Diffraction causes loss of sharpness at small apertures. How small? The rule of thumb is don't use an aperture greater than one quarter the focal length of the lens. So with a 50 millimeter lens, don't shoot smaller than F11. With an F11, with a 100 millimeter lens, don't shoot smaller than F22 and so on. Simple. Hmm. Cheers, Mark. Voila. Thank you, Mark. That's actually a really interesting, I just learned something. I think that's a, a really interesting uh, a really interesting rule of thumb. So the rule of thumb, if you don't, we've want no diffraction, idea if it's true though, have we? Really, we we don't, we don't, but we can we can check. It that. sounds good, doesn't it? And you can yeah, if you say Eric knows this, if you say if you say anything with enough confidence and bluster, oh. then you know you get away with it. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. But but Mark sounds fairly certain with this. And honestly, like if, if the three of us think about this, right? Let's stop and think about this. We're out shooting large format, and we want something to be really sharp, and we don't want a lot of bokeh as the kids say or a lot of noise or anything crazy happening on the outsides the larger the aperture the better right um f16 can be dodgy you know especially if you're shooting uh, something that's a bit closer um so as you know saying like 100 millimeter f22 minimizes that amount of diffraction and noise on the edges and and uh is sort of the the, the lowest point you want to go in terms of of aperture opening to still get like a really good sharp image edge to edge like that that makes total sense right i mean as a rule of thumb as a you know, as a gut call instinctively having shot a lot of film the three of us like for me that that feels like it makes like a logical sense well i, I just probably out of habit more than anything else and um I, when i'm out with my mostly i'm sh- using a 150 lens or 210 then I think both my Schneider lenses go down to f64. Yeah, I, I'm probably at f32, sometimes f45. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so certainly on the 150, what's that divided by four? <laughs> 32 uh, or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 210? I could maybe push to 64 or push, yeah. So, mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, so we'll give you that, Mark. Well, I, yeah. I think there's, there's there's definitely something in in that. I mean, but it, and I think it's important to point out. You know, he's he's described this as a rule of thumb, and I think that's a that's a good term for what he said there because I think things start to get a little bit iffy the wider that you go, um, especially when you equate these to say thirty five millimeter film sizes yeah. and about how wide you can go like with the 40 millimeter lens that means you shouldn't be going any wider than like 3.5 and then you're going to get diffraction not sure <laughs> if that's truly the case um but uh, certainly it, it does seem, it does make sense that you've got more to play with the larger the, the focal length is now i've always equated this to film size but actually mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case when because you know we talk about you know, uh, the Ansel Adams F64 club and, and, and so on. And yep. Now, if they were talking about shooting on, on uh, 
10 by 8, 8 by 10. Mm, yeah. um, then they use an appreciably longer focal length lenses. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. you'll be expecting um, to, to be able F64 to stop. That's easy. Ex- yeah. Precisely. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely something in that. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So if you're worried about it, it's a good rule of thumb. But I'm sure somewhere there's going to be a some kind of table. Because that's quite linear at the moment. And I guess it's going mm-hmm. to be more logarithmic. So, um, but yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Although originally Ansel Adams was not shooting a giant eight by ten, like if you look at the photos of Ansel out and about in the early F sixty four days, like they're all using relatively small mobile, like four by five, nine by twelve cameras of the day. This is, you know, the early tw- early to mid twenties into the early thirties. Um, and actually, I was going to talk about one of their um, one of their members uh, as part of the discussion you know, on like making your images, large format images, how do you make your large format images got and really matter. Uh, one of the, they were in San Francisco in the thirties and there was a huge labor strike in San Francisco in 1934 on May Day, um, where the police and um, anti-labor gangs would break into union houses and gathering areas and just beat people and trash things. Um, and that's where Dorothea Lang really first stepped into the fore as sort of a photojournalist her studio was down there and uh, she took a lot like those famous photos of, of men in red lines policemen as well isn't it the famous one of the policemen exactly in front of the lines i, I just read a yeah. little book on her yeah and that, yeah and that was mentioned yeah. yeah she's she's something but one of the other members uh sort of ancillary members of the f64 group at that time was a woman named consuelo kanaga um who's very little known sadly and she was bound and determined to to take images during that labor movement and the, the rise of everything. And she took her eight by 10 portrait camera and took photos. I've, I'm, I'm just really trying to, I saw the photo in an exhibit at the Oakland Museum of California, um, which is the home of Dorothea Lang's archives. And it's this beautiful, incredible striking photograph taken on an eight by 10 portrait camera of like this anti-union gangs and policemen breaking into a union hall to bust people up. And she just shot the entire thing with an eight by 10 with a giant portrait lens completely ill-suited for the task and she did it anyways and the images are just contrasty blurry incredible chaotic mess which captures to me the moment perfectly um and it really drove home to me at the time this is years ago when i saw it just like how you can what you can do with what you have on hand regardless of what people think you can do with what you have on hand um and Suela Kanaga, look her up. She sadly faded away after she moved to New York City, which is tragic because her portraits of, of African-Americans in New York City are, are breathtaking and stunning. Um, she was an activist, really, with her photography um, for Black Americans. And uh, yeah, her work is absolutely something else. Um, oh, thank you very much, Eric. You um, did a sterling job. <laughs> Absolutely still enjoy job at reading emails. And, uh, thank you, thank you. I think uh, you if that. we get if we get any more, I think Simon may have said it half jokingly, but I think it's not a bad idea yep. to send them to Eric, and he can either well, either get him back on or he can record and send you a a slot, whatever's whatever's easiest. Sure, ask Eric. happy to. That's it. So that's the Ask Eric section uh, that yeah. we have in the podcast. And if people want All to right. send us an email, Simon. Um, they would want to send those emails to large format photography podcast at gmail.com. 
Well done. <laughs> I, I, nearly, I, did, I did nearly panic then. I thought, oh, he's asking me that question. That doesn't happen. <laughs> wait, wait. How, how do they send it? <laughs> yeah. I, I just know when, when I know when uh, Andrew says it wrong. I, I know I know he said it wrong, but there you go. Um, right. Um, bef- before we do um, uh, emails and uh, all the, well, we've done the emails now, but uh, shout outs and things like that. I just wish to say thank you to now. I can't, I'm struggling to work out whether this is two people I need to um, read out this week or, or, or the one, but I'm going to do, do, the, do the two because um, I think this, this one came in after the last time I read it out, and it's from. Um, incredibly difficult name to pronounce friend of the show um, who was um, donated to us in the past and that's Aram have have I have you <laughs> yes. made up name yeah um and i did well while we were on earlier and i thought so I thought, what do those those things over the over the letter a mean and what do they do and i i looked them up and i'm still none the wiser um it's about not being a, a it, they're unrounded vowels and i'm thinking well what's that you know so uh, but thank you very much and um and you uh, left a message in there saying uh, what a great run of episodes uh, sending some coffee for those um future outside broadcasts we have been promised and they are definitely going to happen i've actually started to look at um um recording devices and things like that so um so that that that's definitely going to happen and then our other person that went on to coffee.com um was christopher j may again um so thank you no no message this time but thank you very much uh, christopher it's really really appreciated that um right so uh andrew have you got a shout mm-hmm. out this week well not for a particular person but um former guest of the show and i'm a bit confused because i thought there was an, an Eric article as well, but I, maybe he can enlighten me. Um, Analog Forever magazine. Mag, can I call it magazine? It's more like a book. Yeah, you can. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's beautiful. It's just the best thing. Okay, now in, if you're in the UK, uh, Paul at Analog Wonderland is stocking it. Um, I have issue one and issue two, and this is just a delight to hold, to feel, and sniff. And uh, Je- <laughs> Jenny Sampson's in there. But there's an article that they did about you, and I thought that was going to be in here, but it's not in here, is it? Yeah, that was on the website. Uh, Nini and Kelly interviewed me. Not in the book. That's a shame it's not in the book, because I'd like to see your work in print. And why don't you – are you not going to make a zine or a book or something? Because you'd you'd easily just lose those copies. You know, people would just buy them. (laughs) That's – I'm blushing. That's – thank you um i it, it feels i would love to long story short well one i would love to, to be an analog forever uh Nini and kelly that 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 publication is founded by two people and one of them is is uh my friend Ninian, who uh, is a, a really wonderful person and just super fun to hang out with and talk all things photography uh she's a very very well versed in um old traditional processes and just a million different things. No, she does the Plus interview just, on, she does the Jenny Sampson interview. That's just, right. Yeah. yeah. And she's also just a gem. She's just a, a wonderful person. So I guess I'm just gave a shout out to Nini and Kelly for just being an amazing supporter um, and member of the photography community here in, in Northern California. And also for what she and Michael are doing to just publish analog forever. It is, it is a really beautiful I mean, essentially, it's a quarterly art book. It's, it is. It's, yeah. I can't say enough about it. It's really no, stunning. It is. Um, but I would, I would love to do a book. Books are hard. 
um, you know, if you don't have a publisher to front the costs, you have to self-publish, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that becomes, and then you have to find a, like, as a photographer, I'm a terrible designer. You have to find a good designer who's willing to work for free or cheap to design it. And it's, it's books are hard. Um, I would love to do a book. I just uh, haven't managed to figure out a way to, to do one. Um, Some people use Kickstarter. You're, you, you know, you now you've been shoved to intergalactic fame by <laughs> being on two episodes of the large format photography Truth. podcast. You could, Truth. You, you could, people do pod, um, Kickstarters or other crowdfunding for this and p- people with lesser stature than yourself make it work. <laughs> I don't know how people get less stature than me, but I, people do make it work. People do make yeah. it work. I'd back you, buddy. Um, I would because it's a <laughs> thank you. It, it's a project that needs wider attention, and it needs um, you know you, and it's got a, the, the the project's got a voice, and the voice needs to be heard. And a, a book is just so delightful. Yeah, I think um, next year, next spring, I'm doing another another ride like that. Um, but actually yeah. I'm, I'm tracing the first trail of tears that the Choctaw took from okay. Mississippi to Oklahoma. I'm doing the much same, much the same thing, doing interviews, uh, taking a camera I built myself and lenses that I built myself this time. Is that the uh, tissue box camera? Or different? Yeah. Yep. It's yeah. the 1830s sledding box camera out of a tissue box. Uh, the tissue, I'm just going to call it the tissue box camera. That's a great name. That's done. Sold. Yeah. Um, and I feel like maybe those two bodies have worked together. Um, with the interviews and whatnot, will make uh, a nice book. So I think, I think you can make be... it work with Kickstarter. But I mean, the, the nonsense I see on Kickstarter. I mean, your project will will easily succeed. I'm I'm convinced of it. Thank As you. I say, especially now you've got global fame by being on this show. And you know, and apparently I, I might continue by just answering emails. Yes, which I'm happy to do. By the way, yep. that actually that actually sounds fun. I just I'm looking yep. forward to it. Just well, to check. I think so you anyways. may have a gig there. Yeah. Definitely. Um, uh, Eric, have you, I mean, you've said thank you to a few people already, but have you got anybody else you want to say hello to or uh, thank you? To- um, I think besides the folks I already did, you know, looking glass and glass key and, and Dan at Adobe, um, I would be completely remiss if I didn't thank uh, the love of my life without whom none of this would have been honestly possible, which would be my fiance, Heather Chu, um, who keeps me sane when I'm losing my mind you know, gives me a hard kick in the ass when I need one, you know, pat on the head when I need one and the encouragement to just keep going out and plugging away at this stuff. Um, yeah, like none of this would be possible without her. And of course my parents for instilling these values in me for better or worse, you know, to keep tilting at windmills and just, you know, trying to do the right thing. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got one, uh, shout out and, and I've had this one before and it's to Graham Jago of uh, Sunday 16 podcast and Sunday 16 presents who has finally uh, got his episode out where um, he has a uh, not only does he have a chat to me he also has a chat to Steve Lloyd of Chroma Camera and Matt Marash of the uh, FPP um, and he's pretty much talking on the whole episode uh, justifying his purchase of a Chroma Camera <laughs> Um, that's that's the whole reason for the for the whole um, show. Um, so if you if you want to listen to somebody who's um, gone on a, a 
relatively short journey with uh, with large, large format and um, where it's taken him, then it's it's well worth a listen. So uh, is he is he suffer is he suffering from post purchase cognitive dissonance? There's a marketing term. Not yet, but I think that's what I think that's the whole point of doing the doing those interviews, just yes. to make him feel better yeah. about that purpose. That's it, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I don't think you need you shouldn't ju- need to justify it, Graham. It's a fantastic camera and uh, when when i eventually have my toyo 45 stolen or i drop it and it breaks that's not going to happen is it then uh, uh, i think that uh, one of those uh, one of those chroma cameras is uh, certainly way up there on the list yeah yeah it's about having the right camera for the way that you shoot that's that's the main thing and uh, clearly yeah. that is for him and yep. and uh, i think it is for me as well so mm-hmm. uh, looking forward to mine um okay so uh andrew Outside of this podcast, how can people keep up with the things that you do? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Warboys Snapper. They can hear me on another podcast called The Lensless Podcast every couple of weeks or so. And very active in the Lensless, no, well, I am as well, in the large format photography podcast, Facebook group. And Flickr. And Flickr, yeah, I'm, I've always been active in Flickr. Uh, I go, I go in and out in fits and starts. I, I, what, what I've been doing with the Lensless podcast is uh, regularly highlighting, going on Flickr because it's a great way to view images, and sharing a Flickr artist, pinhole artist, with the wider community. So I go, I drop, um, you know, Flick, uh, some links from Flickr into the Lensless. Uh, podcast facebook group and i'll probably start doing that with uh, with our new one as well that's that's been kindly started by colin uh, colin Devereaux. that is <laughs> going to be forever now so yeah if you want um, if you want uh, exposure across social media with my millions of followers um put your work on Flickr, and we'll i'll highlight it and share it on twitter and in the facebook group and world star will be yours, Colin. Colin. Colin Devereaux. Colin Devereaux, whom I'm sending a uh, a pocket camera. You are converted over to 120 panoramic because yeah. it was his birthday, and I nearly said it's yeah. my birthday too, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I just need to cut out the mask and uh, in January. Okay, yeah. okay, we'll keep that in mind. Um, oh, oh, doing it January 28th. Podcast people who are listening, listening, send him a present. Yeah, I share a birthday with Aka Bilk, the late Aka Bilk. I actually share a birthday with Henri Carrier Brisson. Well, I'm sure Aka Bilk is way cooler. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right. Actually, Henri was, yeah, Henri. Anyways, yeah. Um, so, Eric, weird. Out, out, outside of answering questions on this podcast and appearing on the, the last podcast, um, how can people keep up with the things that you do? Uh, really, the best way is just on good old Instagram. Uh, my account is E-R-I-K-H-M-A-T-H-Y. I, you'll see cameras in progress, work in progress, bunnies, and uh, weird stuff. I don't know cool. In equal measure. Um, and for me, I'm on Twitter is Simon Form on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website. If you stick co.uk at the end of it, where I've got lots of lens caps and things that I'm making. Um, 
and um, Eric, it's just been brilliant having you on again. So thank you for being with us. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me a second time. You're you're really guttons for punishment, but you know I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I, I hope our listeners don't mind. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, on on that note. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and uh, we'll be back again soon. So goodbye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.